Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we are going to talk about healthy aging. Specifically, I'm going to cover a healthy aging checklist, which is a list of six key things every older person should do to maintain the best possible health now and for the future. I created this checklist a while back because I'd noticed that people were often asking me for advice on how to best preserve their health and well-being, or an older parent's health and well-being, as they got older. This is sometimes referred to as prevention, but I think it's actually better to think of it as optimizing one's health, and importantly, one's health care, so that the brain and body work at their best for now and for the future. Because, as we all know, maintaining the best possible health while aging is key to maintaining what's most important to people as they get older, which is the ability to be as physically and mentally capable as possible so that we can remain active, engaged in our lives, and as independent as possible, even as aging brings on certain health challenges. After all, most aging problems that seniors and families struggle with, like difficulties with mobility, memory, or independence, track back to underlying health problems. So it's really important to be proactive, both about preventing those problems in the first place, but perhaps more importantly, about optimizing the management of any ongoing problems so that you can minimize their impact and help people thrive. So in this episode, I'm going to describe a framework that will help you do this. Basically, when I thought about how to optimize the health of an older person, I found that all of my ideas could be organized into six major categories of things that we recommend as geriatricians. And these apply to just about all older adults, regardless of the particulars of their health. So let me tell you all six right now. And then for the rest of the episode, I'll go into each of them in a little bit more depth. The six things to do for healthier aging are these. One, promote brain health and emotional well-being. Two, promote physical health. Three, check for and address common senior health problems that are easily overlooked, which includes problems such as fall, pain, memory problems, depression, isolation, incontinence, and polypharmacy. Four, learn to optimize the management of any chronic conditions. Five, get recommended preventive health services for older adults. And then six, address medical, legal, and financial advanced care planning. Let me now go back over those in a little bit more depth, and I'll explain why each item on the checklist is important, and then I'll share a few key ways to approach them. You may have noticed that they're kind of broad categories of things to do. So the exact way that an older person and their health team might choose to promote brain health might differ a little bit depending on the person's particular situation and also because over time we learn things. 
within the medical community about the best ways to promote brain health or physical health function. So the details can change over time. And I am going to go over uh, some suggestions on how I think right now, the ways that I think are best to try to execute these categories, but those can change over time. However, the broad categories, I think, are always going to be important. And so you can always start with those uh, those six that I described, and then the exact details of how you might implement them with your healthcare team might differ depending on your situation and on how our medical knowledge evolves over time. Also, I do have a related series of articles on the website, which some of you in the audience may have seen before. It's the Healthy Aging Checklist series. And that includes more detailed information on everything that I'm covering here. And I will, of course, link to that series in the show notes so you can read those articles for more details. And also each article does come with a PDF checklist of uh, ways to implement each strategy. And so that can be helpful too. Now, let me start by going into uh, number one, and they're not numbered in any particular order of importance, by the way. Number one, promoting brain health and emotional well-being. Everybody knows that brain health is important, but I add emotional well-being as well because we know that brain function is intimately related to how people feel and also that how people feel ends up being very intimately related to the rest of their uh, physical health and overall well-being. At this time, I have eight specific suggestions on promoting brain health and emotional well-being They are based on my review of the scientific literature and my review of uh, important reports such as the National Academies of Medicine's report on cognitive aging and preserving cognitive health. So three of the recommendations are things to avoid, and then five of them are things to do. And by the way, all of these suggestions do work for people who have been diagnosed with a condition such as Alzheimer's or related dementia, because these are suggestions that optimize brain function Um, pretty much whether or not you have an underlying disease affecting the brain, and it does help slow deterioration. So that's relevant whether or not a person has been diagnosed with a particular condition. And in a way, these, these ideas can be even more important for those people who have Alzheimer's because their brains are even more vulnerable. And so it becomes more important to do things that really help optimize the brain and help it function at its best. So the three things that I recommend avoiding are one, avoiding brain-slowing medications, two, avoiding sleep deprivation, and then three, avoiding delirium. And just as a reminder, delirium is that condition of worse-than-usual mental function that is extremely common in older adults, especially comes on when people are in the hospital or after surgery, but can also be the only outward sign of an illness that happens when people aren't hospitalized. In the article on promoting brain health, there are links with more information about all three of those. But all three of those problems, brain slowing medications, sleep deprivation, and delirium have been related to worse cognitive function in the moment and also are associated sometimes with acceleration of cognitive decline. So those are the three things to avoid. And then there are five things to do. And these also have generally been shown in research to to uh, help uh, maintain brain function and optimize it. So the five things to do are, one, pursue positive social activities, purposeful activities, and activities that nourish the soul. So in this one, I've combined social relationships, but also sort of activities that give people's life purpose and meaning. And so depending on the person, 
That might be the work they do. That might be volunteering. That might be involvement with other family members or with their community, their neighborhood, or their church if they have one. It's extremely important to sort of stay involved in life in a meaningful way. And that does seem to help maintain brain function and has been associated with less cognitive decline. Suggestion on what to do number two is find constructive ways to manage chronic stress. Many people are under stress even when they're older. Sometimes this is financial stress. Sometimes this is due to a job. Sometimes it's due to taking care of someone else, such as an older spouse or another chronically needy family member. And a little stress in life can be good, but a lot of chronic stress does seem to be bad for brain health. So if you are in a situation that creates chronic stress, it's really important to find constructive ways to manage and mitigate that stress. It's often not possible to remove entirely the stressors, the job, the financial strains, or uh, the caregiving responsibilities. But We do know that when people make an effort to find ways to manage their stress, they can end up um, tolerating the situation better. So what you want to do is usually combine uh, general approaches, such as improving sleep, exercising, sort of the self-care kind of approaches, and then also learn approaches that are specific to whatever is the source of stress. So if an older person is experiencing a lot of stress due to caregiving, then there are skills that caregivers can learn to better cope with the situation. If they're caring for a person with dementia, then learning some dementia management skills can help and also support groups can help. What's really important is to avoid relying on tranquilizers or medications that treat anxiety. Most of these are bad for the brain and some of them can be habit forming as well. Moving on. A third thing to do to promote brain health is to seek treatment if there are any signs of depression or chronic anxiety. Untreated depression is fairly common among older adults, and then a certain number of them have chronic anxiety as well. And both of these problems have been linked with developing brain health problems. It's important to bear in mind that anxiety and depression can often be treated with non-drug approaches. And so I recommend that people start there if possible. Some of those approaches overlap with approaches for managing chronic stress because that's usually safer in the long run for a person's health. The fourth thing to do for brain health is to stay physically active and exercise regularly. Most people have heard this, but it's really true. There's lots of evidence linking physical activity and regular exercise with better brain health. And then my fifth suggestion for promoting brain health is to address risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease is not just about the heart and its related blood vessels. Cardiovascular disease also includes problems with blood flow to the brain, which can lead to major strokes and then also can lead to the minor strokes, which can eventually cause vascular dementia. So reducing and addressing those cardiovascular risk factors helps preserve good blood flow to the brain and that promotes brain health. The risk factors to consider optimizing include high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes and prediabetes, smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Now, along with those eight things to do for brain health, so there were three to avoid and five to do, I do have two additional optional ones. 
Uh, they were evaluated by the National Academy of Medicine for the Cognitive Aging Report, and the National Academy of Medicine concluded in both cases that the research was promising but not conclusive. So I consider them optional but good to think about. One is eating a diet that's conducive to brain health. There's a lot of debate about exactly what that diet should look like. There's a lot of interest in specific brain health foods, which I find usually doesn't pan out. But there is some fairly interesting and I find persuasive evidence for the Mediterranean diet. A version of it was tested in a randomized control trial in Spain a few years ago and led to a reduction in cardiovascular events. And there was also some evidence that perhaps the participants who were taking this Mediterranean diet did better for cognitive health as well. Now, people sometimes ask about other supplements um, and specific foods for brain health. The evidence for specific supplements is usually weak. So I think it's better to just focus on a diet that's generally good for the body rather than looking for particular foods or supplements that are going to target the brain because uh, no such food or supplement has been conclusively shown to be effective as best I can tell. And then in terms of what foods or diet is good for the body, as I mentioned, a Mediterranean-style diet seems pretty promising. But otherwise, fundamentally, a healthy diet for the body is one that doesn't provoke negative health effects, such as being prone to take on extra weight or developing insulin resistance or prediabetes, one that doesn't seem to make a person prone to develop atherosclerosis or cardiovascular disease, and also shouldn't be associated with uncomfortable symptoms in the belly or the bowels. Exactly what diet is best for this is obviously a topic of ongoing research and probably also is going to be different for different people. For now, if you want to eat for brain health, I would say focus on a diet that seems to help you or your older relative reduce their cardiovascular risk factors. Let me now move on to the other optional suggestion for promoting brain health. It's brain training games and exercises, also sometimes called cognitive training. So studies have found that older adults can improve certain cognitive abilities through brain training programs, but those programs mainly seem to improve a person's ability to do the tested task. This can be sometimes helpful if people have mild cognitive impairment and maybe want to strengthen something that they're having difficulty with. But the overall value of brain training is still being debated. So I consider it optional. If you find you enjoy the activities, go ahead. Otherwise, I think it's better to devote one's energies to social and purposeful uh, activities that are broader in scope. And then, of course, if you enjoy doing crossword puzzles or Sudoku, uh, go ahead. Okay, moving on to healthy checklist item number two, that is promote physical health. In the related article, I recommend six proven ways to maintain one's physical health and then one optional suggestion. They mostly overlap with the promoting brain health recommendations because the health of the body and the brain are, of course, intimately related. But in the article, I link more to evidence of the effect of uh, these activities on, on overall physical health rather than specifically on brain health. So I'll be brief since they mostly overlap with the brain health recommendations. The six proven ways that can promote physical health are exercise, not smoking, getting enough sleep, avoiding chronic stress, maintaining a healthy weight, and then eating an overall healthy diet. For those who have struggled with being overweight or obese, 
You should know that research shows that losing a modest amount of weight, such as 5 to 7% of one's body weight, does often improve symptoms, such as symptoms of arthritis in the knees, and is in some cases associated with less health risk. So if you're concerned about being well above a normal or healthy, quote unquote, weight, you can still promote physical health and healthy aging just by losing what might be a more modest amount of weight, especially if you combine that with physical activity and with nutrition that reduces cardiovascular risk factors. Now, as I mentioned, I did also have one optional suggestion for promoting physical health, and that is to pay attention to your gut microbiota. So this means all those microbes that live in your intestinal tract. And there's really been a lot of exciting new research over the past 10 years. This is a topic that was not brought up at all when I was in medical school 20 years ago, but there's exciting new research that indicates that these microbes play a really important role in modulating our immune system and the level of inflammation in our bodies. And this is exciting and new because for a long time, we knew that there were lots of bacteria in the gut, but we thought they were just sort of hanging out there, not doing much. And now we're learning that they're very intimately involved in how our body processes nutrients, how our body creates inflammatory factors that later affect the health of our blood vessels and the health of the rest of the body. So it really seems that they're quite important in our health, although we're still teasing out how. What does that mean for you in terms of healthy aging and promoting your physical health? Well, the scientists are still learning just how we can cultivate that relationship for best health, but it seems like the very basics are one to minimize antibiotics because they wipe out all your quote-unquote good bacteria along with whatever bad ones that the doctors are trying to treat. You want to be careful about using them just when necessary and for less time rather than more when possible. And the other thing that seems to be helpful to the microbiota is to eat a lot of fiber because generally the better types of bacteria in the gut thrive when people eat more fiber. And this is thought to be part of the reason why people in countries where they eat a very high fiber diet have quite low rates of colon cancer. Lastly, for some people, it seems that eliminating certain foods such as certain grains may help, although that seems to be fairly individual. Now, what's not clearly beneficial to optimizing physical health is extra vitamins and supplements. I might make an exception for vitamin D, but otherwise, unless you have a documented deficiency, it's really not clear that supplements help. And it doesn't, it's also a problem that in the United States, supplements are unregulated. And so multiple studies have found that often the claim on the label of what's in the supplement is inaccurate. Another possible exception might be omega-3 fatty acids, which are found in oily fish and fish oil. Um, there's some evidence that they might be helpful, especially in people who are uh, already at quite high risk for cardiovascular disease, but it's not as persuasive as one would like it to be. So again, I think the best is to eat uh, a generally healthy diet, and the Mediterranean diet is probably a, a good place to start. And otherwise, if you have an interest in specific supplements for promoting your physical health or even your brain health, I recommend you discuss it with your doctor to uh, learn more about how it might fit in with your particular health situation. So let me now move on to item number three on the healthy aging checklist, which was to check for and address commonly overlooked senior health problems. These are problems that often drag down health and quality of life, and they're easily missed by doctors. Or if they are noticed or brought to the attention of doctors, they're often suboptimally managed. 
But it can really make a big difference to an older person's health if these are addressed and can really, I think, help with healthy aging. Also, a lot of these factors can interfere with people's ability to pursue other sort of healthy lifestyle activities like exercising or being socially involved. So as part of healthy aging, I recommend regularly checking for these commonly overlooked problems and then getting help if they are an issue. So the problems to check for are falls or fear of falling, memory concerns, just because they're often either not noticed by people or kind of brushed off and addressed relatively late. And meanwhile, lots of other things can be going off the rails with the person's health. So I feel it's better to address it sooner rather than later. Another commonly overlooked problem would be depression, which already came up under the uh, promoting brain health um, category. But it's important to note that in older adults, depression sometimes manifests as loss of interest in previously enjoyable activities. So again, it can be really hard for people to be socially involved, to be involved in volunteer activities, or to be out exercising if they are feeling depressed. So important to, to notice it, bring it to attention, and attempt treatment. And again, I recommend treatment with non-drug methods first, or at least that it be considered because these can be safer in the long run and fewer risk of medication interactions and side effects. Another commonly overlooked problem to check for is urinary incontinence. Difficulties with urine leaks or bladder control are often accepted as part of aging, but if it's embarrassing or bothersome, it can cause older adults to restrict their activities. And it is often possible to improve incontinence once it's brought to the attention of clinicians and a good evaluation is done. Again, a non-drug, non-drug strategies are often effective and can be safer. In particular, it's very easy for clinicians to dash off a prescription and the medications they tend to prescribe are actually anticholinergic and often not great for the brain. Another approach is to try exercises and bladder training or a schedule of getting to the bathroom regularly. So if this is uh, an issue for you or for an older person that you're concerned about, be sure to ask about non-drug methods of managing incontinence as well. And now I'll just briefly mention three other commonly overlooked problems that I think fall within this category. Another one is pain, chronic pain. Surveys show that about 50% of older adults are experiencing bothersome pain every month. And again, this can prevent or impair people from getting out and attending to social activities or exercise. And again, non-drug methods of managing pain are important and should be considered. Another commonly overlooked problem is isolation and loneliness. And people are at especially high risk if they live alone, are bereaved, or have health problems that are keeping them from getting out. And then lastly, a commonly overlooked problem is polypharmacy. Taking multiple medications, especially five or more, can put people at risk of side effects, of interactions, and can also just be burdensome. And so the thing to do in that case is to really carefully look over them and see whether any of them can be uh, reduced or eliminated because it's actually fairly common for older adults to be taking more medications than perhaps they need to. So noticing that problem and attending to it can put people on a footing for healthier aging at the moment and down the line. I'm now going to move on to item number four on the healthy aging checklist, which is learning to optimize the management of any chronic conditions the person has. This is another category which I think people often don't think of it as part of healthy aging. It 
doesn't seem like a healthy lifestyle issue or a prevention issue, but if your goal is to optimize an older person's health so that it's the best it can be now and for the future, this is actually incredibly important. Most older adults have at least one chronic health condition. Over two-thirds of people on Medicare have two or more chronic conditions. And most of the aging problems that older adults eventually develop are due to chronic health conditions that have progressed or caused complications. Learning to be involved and to be proactive and to optimize the care of these chronic conditions is very important for the prevention of future health deteriorations while aging. And it's also vital to helping older adults feel and function their best in the here and now. Of course, what happens is that many people assume that their doctors, their primary care doctors or specialists are going to make sure that those chronic conditions are optimized. But unfortunately, at this time, we know that Americans often do not get all recommended health care and that chronic conditions are not optimally managed. And that's for a variety of reasons, including the fact that visits are often very rushed. So nobody has a stake in making sure that these conditions are optimally managed as much as the patient and the family. And I really encourage people to get in the habit of being proactive, doing a little homework, double checking things and asking questions. Also, since I find that older adults and families so often underestimate the importance of optimizing these chronic conditions, I just want to briefly summarize some of the ways that older adults are routinely, and I really mean routinely, harmed by their chronic conditions. And these are things that you can improve by optimizing the care of that chronic condition. So the problems that come up with chronic conditions, one is distressing and uncomfortable symptoms. So for instance, atrial fibrillation or heart failure or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease can all cause shortness of breath, which can keep people from being out and about and as involved in their lives and proper management can reduce that. Symptoms are a problem both because they're distressing and uncomfortable and because they interfere with people doing social activities or even getting their physical exercise and participating in healthy behaviors. Another problem is that chronic conditions tend to progress, especially if they're not optimally managed. So when a person has a condition, one of our main goals is to keep it from progressing and getting worse because many chronic conditions such as kidney disease, heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and Alzheimer's disease exist on a spectrum of mild to severe, and the symptoms of a chronic condition go up when it's in a more severe state. So we want to optimally manage it to delay the progression. That might be a little harder to do with Alzheimer's, but is very doable with some of the other conditions when the medical care is optimized. Another problem with chronic conditions is that they can cause new chronic conditions. So high blood pressure is a condition that in of itself doesn't cause many symptoms, but if it's poorly treated, it can bring on problems such as stroke, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and kidney disease. Chronic conditions also bring on increased medication prescribing, especially if they get more severe. So it's important to optimize the care so that the medications uh, used are judicious and that the benefit outweighs the risks and burdens. Chronic conditions also obviously can cause health crises and emergencies. Now, talk about an interference with healthy aging. So people with diabetes can experience catastrophically high or low blood sugar. People with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease can ex develop uh, exacerbations, which people sometimes call flares, which can require hospitalization and help with their breathing. So these are problems that when 
older adults and their families uh, learn to work well with their doctors to optimize the management, the risk of all those crises and complications goes down. And then the worst thing about chronic conditions is that they can often eventually cause, first of all, chronic disability of the body or mind, and then premature death. So these are problems that are important to avoid. And so if you're thinking about healthy aging, it's great to be paying attention to what you're eating and exercise in a healthy lifestyle. But if you have chronic conditions, you might end up having a much stronger impact on the person's health and well-being by learning to optimize those chronic conditions. Of course, the goal is to do both, optimize the chronic conditions and promote brain health and physical health. But I find that people are often very oriented towards preventive activities and may not pay as much attention to managing chronic conditions, when in fact it's important to do both. Now that I've made a case for the importance of managing chronic conditions, if you're concerned about healthy aging, you may be wondering, well, what does that exactly mean? What needs to be done? And there are a couple of specific things that I recommend. One is to maintain your own up-to-date list of chronic conditions, and then just make sure that you look at it periodically and ask yourself, so what's going on with this condition? Have I discussed it with my doctor? Do I have any concern about the symptoms? Because for instance, it's not uncommon for some chronic conditions to kind of fall off the radar for a bit and for nobody to follow up and take a look and see if the medications need to be adjusted. Another thing to do is to maintain your own personal health record, especially to maintain copies of laboratory results and radiology results. This can allow older people and their families to follow along with what's happening with their condition and then can be very helpful if they ever have to switch doctors or get a second opinion or just go to a different emergency room or hospital during an emergency. And then depending on the condition, there are self-management skills that, that people can be taught so that they better understand the condition and how it's affecting their bodies and how to manage the symptoms and look out for signs that more help is needed or that a change in medication is needed. I also encourage people to learn to research best practices for managing a chronic condition in older adults. Doctors are very well-intentioned, but research shows that they often fail to provide recommended care. And so uh, learning to do one's own homework just to see if there are other options to consider, or if there are additional questions to ask can be very, very valuable. This is sometimes called being a proactive patient or an empowered patient or even an e-patient. Last but not least, I really recommend, especially for older adults, but it's a good idea for anybody, to bring a relative or another trusted person to the health visits. So research has found that bringing a companion often improves patient and physician understanding because there's an extra person to take notes, ask questions, and otherwise support the person who's coming in for the visit. And I think it's especially helpful with older adults if they've been feeling unwell, if there's been any concern about memory. Now, the companion has to respect the older person's autonomy, dignity, and desire for privacy. And so it's important to talk usually about what's going to happen when you go in together and sort of set uh, expectations. But I think it can overall be a huge benefit in terms of getting the right help from the doctor and understanding what needs to be done afterwards. So let me move on now to healthy checklist recommendation number five, which is get recommended preventive health services for older adults. So these are services recommended by the U.S. Preventive Health Task Force and by Medicare, and they basically fall into three key categories. 
So the first is screening for health problems that are not yet causing symptoms noticeable to the patient. So this especially includes some forms of cancer screening, such as uh, screening for breast cancer or colon cancer. And then it also includes screening for conditions like high blood pressure or high blood sugar, which generally don't cause symptoms. Preventive uh, health services also includes checking for common problems that do cause symptoms but are easily overlooked in routine clinical care. So this includes asking patients about things like depressive symptoms, falls, or checking for signs of alcohol abuse. And lastly, preventive health includes administration of vaccines or other medications to reduce the risk of a future illness. So there is currently a long uh, list of preventive health services that are relevant for older adults. If you look at the related article on better health while aging, I wrote a comprehensive guide after I researched the latest recommendations, and I counted 26 different services at the time. This was several months ago, but they don't necessarily apply to all older adults because some of them depend on the gender of the person or the age range or on their general health state. So you can learn more about the services and who it's recommended for by reading the article. And now for the last item on the healthy aging checklist, number six is address medical, legal, and financial advance planning. Now, this is a big topic and doing it well can take some time, but at a very bare minimum, this means completing power of attorney paperwork so that a designated family member or another trusted individual will be able to act on your behalf should you ever lose the ability to make decisions temporarily, such as during a health crisis, or should you lose the ability to make decisions more permanently, such as in the context of Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia. It is really common for older adults to at least temporarily need help making decisions, especially during hospitalization. A 2014 study found that within 48 hours of hospitalization, 47% of older adults required decision help from surrogate decision makers. And many of those older adults will eventually recover the ability to make decisions. People are often uh, disabled because of an illness or the crisis or delirium after a surgery, and uh, many people do recover. But as we discussed in the episode on delirium, which was episode 14, it can sometimes take weeks or even months to recover to one's best mental abilities, and it's really important to have somebody available as a backup. So you want to at least have thought about who would make medical decisions for me, and also who could manage my finances and other affairs, if I were to have an accident or a sudden health crisis, or if I was otherwise too sick or hurt or disabled to make decisions. And uh, so once you've um, thought of who that person should be, and if you don't have family available or don't want um, family members to do this, uh, you can choose a friend or better yet, if you can afford it, a professional fiduciary. They're trained to manage these kinds of decisions for people. So once you've thought of who the person is and you should discuss it with the person as well and make sure they're, uh, they feel willing and able to take on this role for you, once you've selected the person, then you want to complete power of attorney documents, which are legal for your state. The requirements in terms of whether they need to be notarized and what kind of witnesses, that varies state to state. 
And in the related article that I have on the Better Health While Aging website about advanced care planning, I have links available to help you find information specific to your state. So you'll want to complete those documents. And generally, you need to do one for medical and healthcare decisions, and then another one, a general durable power of attorney, which covers financial affairs, or you can make it specific just for financial affairs. And getting the forms finalized and legal and giving copies to your family and your physicians is really important. But you don't just want to complete forms because the real goal is not just to empower others to make decisions on your behalf, uh, although that does often end up being very important. But what you really want is to empower somebody else to make decisions that you would consider good decisions. So ideally, the forms are part of a bigger, broader advanced care planning process that involves learning more about what kinds of decisions your power of attorney might have to make on your behalf, such as certain decisions related to end-of-life treatments. And then you want to provide some guidance, which usually starts with a person reflecting on their own, what's important to me, what would I want in this situation, and then having conversations with family or with others, with professionals, their doctors, maybe their attorneys or another expert. And, and after having this process of reflection conversation, you end up being able to provide some guidance in the form of hopefully some written documents because that helps prevent arguments later on about what the person intended. And so you provide some guidance that can help your surrogate decision makers, your power of attorney or powers of attorney. Sometimes people have two, one for medical, one for legal. That guidance can help them make decisions. And such guidance documents are sometimes called living wills or advanced directives. Now, people often find it hard to address advanced planning, in part because we all naturally find it unpleasant and difficult to contemplate a time when we might not be able to make decisions and we might not be able to be as independent as we usually are. Fortunately, experts have developed a number of helpful tools and guides, which can kind of walk a person through the process. And the conversation guides are nice, too, because they can kind of provide a structure for a conversation with family members or others, or even with the clinicians or other experts. And using those makes it a lot easier to address advanced planning. Also in my article, I have links to a few books that I thought were especially helpful, including one that's called Five at 55, written by two elder law attorneys that sort of details the five documents that every person should make sure to complete at age 55 or afterwards. And that covers some of these power of attorney documents. So do make sure that you've addressed advanced planning uh, for healthy aging, because having these conversations and completing that paperwork is in fact key to enabling the best possible aging later in life. So to summarize and recap, if you want to make sure you're on the right track for healthy aging, meaning you want to optimize your health and healthcare so that your brain and body can work at their best for now or the future, or if you want to help an older parent or another older relative uh, achieve this so that they can live the best life possible even as age-related problems occur, the six things to do are one, promote brain health and emotional well-being, two, promote physical health, three, check for and address commonly uh, often overlooked senior health problems such as falls, pain, memory problems, depression, isolation, incontinence, and polypharmacy, four, learn to optimize the management of any chronic conditions, learn to be proactive, 
and involved so that you can make sure you're getting the right care or care that's a good fit for your situation. Five, get recommended preventive health services for older adults. You can review the list of 26 services and determine which ones seem indicated given your age and health condition and gender. And then six, address medical, legal, and financial advanced care planning. So if you do those six things for yourself or for an older relative, you will have set up an excellent foundation for optimizing your health right now, for preventing or delaying health problems, and for being better prepared to navigate future health crises or declines. Last but not least, I have six items on the checklist, but as you heard, each of them has several sub-items, several little ways to manage it. Don't get overwhelmed by all these things. Probably what's best is to make a plan to review the list once a month and pick one to two items to work on. You want to chip away at it. I'm recording this right now, uh, right around New Year's, so you could make a plan early in the year to work away at all of these over the year, but it's uh, it's not something that you can do all in one go. You want to just make it a habit that you're always working away at some of these, and that's how you can maintain the best possible health while aging. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting links to all six of the Healthy Aging Checklist articles. And as I mentioned, each article comes with a PDF cheat sheet that has a checklist of the recommendations so that you can check them off or, or use them to organize yourself. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. If you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This does make it easier for others to discover our show on iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.